Micah 5, longing for acceptance. Um, Acceptance by some group of people is considered a basic human need. In fact, it's perhaps the most important basic human need outside of the obvious needs like food, water, shelter, clothing, safety, the obvious stuff that we need to survive. The next level, if you will, would be people, relationships, acceptance. When we're small children, that group is supposed to be our family, right? But as we grow older we start to leave the nest and we start to look for other groups to find acceptance. And there are often some painful moments along the way. Some of us know what it felt like to be picked last at sports. Some of us know what it felt like to have a friend when we were younger pick a new group and then leave us behind. Anybody have that experience? Some of us know what it feels like to be rejected even by our own family members. And that need doesn't go away when we're an adult, does it? Everyone feels this need for a tribe. Um, I've got a friend who, when he was a teenager, uh, was involved in a gang. But there was a police officer who started to pursue him, not as a criminal, but just as a young man. And he helped my friend get to college and graduate college. And now my friend is working um, with gang prevention units at various police departments. And his goal, he told me, is not to get them to drop their flag or to leave the gang that they're part of, because he knows that's probably not going to work. Instead, what he does is he tries to help them make better choices and find other adult influences in in their lives to help shape them. Because according to my friend, it is this basic need, the need for acceptance for a tribe that draws young men into gangs. And in his words, it could have been a youth pastor Or some other adult male. But when I most needed guidance as a 13 year old boy. It was a gangster who took me under his wing. Now this was a long introduction to make a very simple point. Everyone needs to feel accepted. Everyone wants to belong somewhere. But why are we talking about this the Sunday before Christmas? Well, there are two reasons. The first is, if you don't feel like you have a good community around you, if you don't feel like you have a tribe, then the holidays are especially difficult, right? Because it seems like everybody else has people, and you might be feeling just really acutely alone right now. So that's the first reason. But second, and more importantly, even if you don't feel alone, all of us have this deep longing for acceptance. And this is actually a really important theme in the Bible. In fact, I'm going to tell you today that the advent of Jesus Christ is many things, but one of them is it's a direct response to that longing 
for acceptance. Our text this morning is a messianic prophecy from the minor prophet Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. It's on the screen. It says this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. That first sentence in Hebrew is actually a pun. It's a play on words. The writer is mocking the fact that God's people did not have a strong enough army to defeat the enemy at their gates. Now we know this is probably in reference to Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC when Hezekiah was king. You can read about this event in 2 Chronicles 32. It's also, I believe, in 2 Kings 19. Uh, Sennacherib was at that time the king of Assyria and Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world. The Assyrians were known for their brutality. They were extremely violent, had an extremely large army. Israel, in contrast, was always a small nation compared to the giant empires that rose and fell around them. And so they're caught in the middle of this battle of empires, Egypt on one side, Assyria on the other. But let's keep reading. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is a way of saying that the enemy is humiliating our king. The idea is that he is so defenseless that he cannot even protect his face. And according to Second Chronicles, Sennacherib actually sent messages to Jerusalem with the purpose of mocking and humiliating King Hezekiah during the siege. The historical records of this event are actually really interesting. And I had a, a fun time um, studying for this sermon because of all the different records. On one side, you've got the Assyrians. And the Assyrian records claim that Sennacherib, their king, destroyed 46 cities in Israel. And that his army had Hezekiah trapped in Jerusalem, quote, like a caged bird. But what's interesting about the Assyrian record is that the siege mysteriously ended and the army of Assyria retreats even though Assyria had a much larger army and a much more advanced military. Assyria was one of the first empires to have siege weapons to be able to take cities. So it doesn't make much sense why the story just ends. Greek historian Herodotus claimed that the Assyrian army was overrun by field mice. Which is a little strange. May have been a reference to the plague. But according to the Bible, the Hebrew narrative of what happened during this siege, the Bible says that God protected His people by sending a destroying angel to rout the Assyrian army. Kings says that they killed, that this angel killed over 180,000 soldiers 
Second Chronicles says that Sennacherib went home with shame of face and was later killed by his own sons. And that's exactly what happened. Several years after the siege, Sennacherib was assassinated by his own sons. Now, I'm telling you all of this because I think the history is an important backdrop to the prophecy in verse 2, which is what we're most familiar with, okay? Verse 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So you may have heard this before around Christmas time. Bethlehem was a small town in the region of Ephrathah, similar to how we would write a city and state. Okay, so Horn Lake, Mississippi, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And the name of the town and the region together means this, fruitful house of bread. Fruitful house of bread. But the rest of that sentence in Hebrew says, You, O fruitful house of bread, are insignificant with regards to your existence among the clans of Judah. That's what it says. Okay? So the adjective little, it says too little. You are too little. You're insignificant. It relates to the quality of the city, not the quantity of the inhabitants. Okay, so the writer is saying that you are the least or the weakest of all the towns in Judah. Why does that matter? Because what God is saying is that He was planning from ancient days for the most insignificant place to give birth to the most significant person in world history. The town of Bethlehem to us is famous because we know it to be the birthplace of Jesus. And we drive around and see nativity scenes and we think of Bethlehem because of the nativity story. But in the context of Micah 5... Bethlehem was a small, insignificant town. This is like saying that the greatest player in the history of football will come from the Detroit Lions. Now, if you're not a football fan, all you need to know is that the Detroit Lions are almost always the worst team in the, la- in the league. Okay? So when I tell people that I'm a Lions fan, which is true, they usually chuckle Because they know the Lions are terrible every year. (laughs) And so when this prophecy was written, the only significant thing about Bethlehem was a little bit of history. So like if I say Detroit Lions, the only thing anybody ever thinks of is Barry Sanders. The only significant player really ever come. And so you mentioned Bethlehem in Micah 5, and I said, well, that's the hometown of David. But otherwise, no one had thought about Bethlehem In several hundred years, but now the prophet Micah is introducing the town of Bethlehem, the town of David, 
as the birthplace of the Messiah in the middle of this, right in the middle of this great conflict between powerful nations. Okay, so you see the, the big scene in this little insignificant town. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This basically means, of course, that until Jesus is born, until the virgin gives birth, that Israel will be insignificant. For the next several hundred years, they will be insignificant. And that's exactly what happens. Israel, if you know the history, was used and abused by every other nation or empire for 700 years. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I want you to imagine how important this prophecy would have been to God's people while they were systematically conquered over and over again between the time this prophecy was written in the birth of Jesus. And it was because of prophecies like this one during the time of Jesus most people were expecting the Messiah to be a great military leader. It was because of prophecies like this, okay? Because they made the connection rightly to David. And so like David, they're looking for someone to come and take the throne and conquer and protect. They were not expecting someone like Jesus. But if you remember, we studied David, right, this year. If you remember, David was not born an obvious choice to be king, was he? He was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest son of Jesse. Everyone was shocked when Samuel called for David and anointed David. And this prophecy actually makes that connection by calling the Messiah a shepherd. Jesus was not the obvious choice, but He was God's choice. He was the right choice. One of my favorite episodes of The Office, um, and I apologize if you've never seen The Office, but it's one of the, uh, it's the one where The Office employees play basketball against the warehouse employees. Okay? And when Michael Scott, who is the, the boss on the show, chooses his team for this, this ba basketball game, he picks the players in the office that, that he assumes will be good at basketball based on stereotypes. And the funny thing is they actually end up being terrible at, at basketball. And it reminds me that 
in Scripture, one of the things that we've learned about God from our study of Judges and of Ruth and of Samuel is that God apparently absolutely delights in choosing the weak and the small on purpose to demonstrate His power. He didn't do it on accident like Michael Scott. He does it on purpose. He intentionally chooses the least likely to make his point. It should never have surprised God's people. It should never have surprised them that the Messiah would be someone unexpected. But think about the life and ministry of Jesus, okay? So Jesus began His ministry by choosing to be publicly baptized by His cousin, who was a strange man wearing camel skins. And then instead of choosing normal rabbinical students as His followers, He intentionally went out and chose fishermen and tax collectors. Instead of building friendships and alliances with the other religious leaders during his day, he had dinner parties attended by prostitutes and he called the religious leaders snakes. It's almost like Jesus was trying to get himself killed. Because he accepted all the wrong people And he rejected all the right people. And in the end, his own people rejected him. Which is to say, you could categorize the ministry of Jesus in one sense as a ministry of acceptance and rejection. His acceptance of the least and the weak and the marginalized of the earth. His rejection by the people who should have known better. And even when you get to the birth of Jesus, which I read about in Matthew 1, it fits this theme, right? God used a teenage girl, not yet married, to carry His only son. God then led her fiancé to accept her in spite of the potentially shameful circumstances. Baby Jesus was accepted and worshipped by dirty shepherds and foreign Gentiles. But the king of Israel tried to have him murdered. And that's the Christmas story. That is God's story of how He was able to embrace and accept sinners into His family through the rejection of His only Son, Jesus Christ, It's a beautiful story, and best of all, it's a true story. It's why we're here. Our acceptance by God is a free offer through the work of Jesus on the cross. He was rejected so that we could be accepted into the kingdom by faith. And that's the gospel, right? And that is where most sermons typically end. But this morning, and I don't do this every time, but this morning I want to take it a step further today. And I want to say something that I think is important to say. 
Maybe I don't say it enough. When we talk about the acceptance of the gospel, I want to be clear. This is not a blanket acceptance being offered by God. God is not overlooking our sin. He is in fact punishing our sin at the cross. And we do not, if we do not, experience His renewing grace in our lives as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, then we will face the wrath of God alone, without the cross. In other words, what I'm telling you is that repentance is not optional. Repentance is not optional. And I need to say this. I need to say this because we live in an age of tolerance and inclusion. And when I say the word acceptance, that's what most of us think about. But guys, as long as we accept the cultural definition of those words is what the world wants from us, right? The culture has its own definition of acceptance and tolerance and inclusion. The culture wants us to believe that anything goes. That none of our choices is a problem. That there's nothing about us that really needs to change. That we all just need to get along and accept what other people are choosing to do and say with their lives. And there's nothing that we really need to repent of. The God of the Bible is not offering blanket acceptance. It's important that we do not cheapen God's grace by preaching acceptance without repentance. And to show you what I mean by this, I want you to listen to how Micah 5 ends. Okay, So we read the great messianic promise of peace and forgiveness and redemption. Look at Micah 5 verse 9. Your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. Okay, so that's good news. Right, it says God will provide victory over the enemies. Remember at the beginning it said, you don't have the army for this job, right? But I'm going to send one who will come and he will make it right. He will defeat the enemies That's the good news. But look what comes next. Verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off your sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. In other words, God says... 
I'm going to save you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to save my people. But I'm also going to destroy all this other stuff you've been depending on. It's all gone too. I'm accepting you. But I'm not accepting your sin. The idols must go. They must go. God will bring victory. But victory doesn't mean that God is now going to tolerate our sin and our wickedness. Victory, according to God, is victory over sin and death. This is what Jesus accomplished for us and for the glory of God. And so the simplest way I can say it, the easiest way I can apply it is this. Yes, God takes us the way He finds us. But He never leaves us the way He found us. Yes, we are invited into the kingdom by something that only Christ could accomplish. But so that He could eradicate the sin and the death in this world, including what's in my heart. This is not blanket tolerance of the world. This is so much better than that. This is so much more authentically human. The Bible teaches that in Christ we are new creations. The old has gone. The new has come. Listen to how Peter describes the people of God. He says to us, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Brothers and sisters, that is the acceptance that we long for. That's it. And in Christ Jesus, this is who we are. This is who we are to be by God's grace. And so I tell you, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for these words, this calling. This is who we are, present tense, but... We struggle to believe it, to accept it. Like, uh, like victims carrying the remnants of sin that we are, we struggle to believe these words are true for us in Christ. And so we pray this week as we celebrate the birth of Christ, and look forward to His second coming. We would see this as a call to believe, to trust, but also to repent as the gospel is always presented to us. Leaving something behind, turning to something new.
We thank You for the gift of Jesus. We rejoice together in Your Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.